0: to another episode of Inspire for 5, the Singularity U Australia podcast, where we get to speak with amazing and inspirational people every episode. Today we're speaking with Nick Burnett, who's an education and learning expert, uh, an entrepreneur, a futurist, and I have to say, one of our newest faculty members. So welcome, Nick, to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Christina. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Our pleasure. So we're going to speak today about your experience in education, uh, and we've been very fortunate to have a few guests on the podcast around education because it's such a crucial global grand challenge um, that we really need to meet and the whole redevelopment and I think particularly now so we're recording this episode during COVID-19 where a lot of parents are struggling with homeschooling, teachers have had to shift incredibly quickly um, in order to, uh, to get courses online, to send students home, to figure out what all that means. I believe we're in an era of the new phase of education but also in the new phase of respect for education because, Mm. uh, you know, it's not until something hits you very much up close and personal, which is what's happening in many, many households around Australia. Um, But you, you, so we had a quick chat before um, recording the podcast and we noted what your five points of inspiration were. And the first one was where you said that you moved from mainstream into special education so what were you in where did you go Um, and why was it so pivotal for you?
1: Yeah look it's an interesting one it was a one of those sort of key moments for me so I was very much I was trained as a secondary teacher had no particular view of going into special education Uh, and funny enough uh, I was sort of uh, my father said to me why don't you go and have a look at this local special school and it was for a friend uh, as exploring it so I went and had a look around and and it just sort of really captured me I don't know what it was about it but there's something about the young people and how it was operating it was a residential special school so totally different to what my experience was but there's just something there uh, some spark or what it was that sort of drew me to it and uh, my father's been a quite a strong influencer in my life and it much got the view of why not give it a go even if you don't like it it'll add value to who you are and how you operate uh, and you say you don't have to do anything forever so that's sort of really been a quite a strong influence in my life and, uh, and a number of points where i've had quite significant decisions that i I've, I've made but i've always known that i've had a plan b if it doesn't work out i've never hated anything i've left there's always an option to go back but actually Seizing the moment and never looking back and thinking, "I wish I'd done this" or "I wish I'd done that," was is crucial. And that sort of was probably my first experience of of doing something like that.
0: I remember um, doing some work experience at a special ed school and becoming very attached to um, to a lot of the young the young children uh, there and what their needs were, but also what their so it wasn't so much their vulnerability, but it was their openness really uh, that affected me they 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 were very open to um to learning even though it was happening at at different levels and that's not saying they were better levels or worse levels they were just happening in completely different different aspects of of being I think. Did you find did you find them?
1: Yeah. Look, it's there's a number of things that now I reflect back because that was, you know, thirty years ago nearly, when I first went into special education. And what was it about special ed- education that drew me in and that I enjoyed and spent, you know, a number of years in there? One was I think, following on from what you said there, very much of what you see is what you get there's no hidden agendas with with kids in that environment they're just very very straightforward in what they're thinking and feeling and, and you certainly know about that but also one that I think is really again when I reflect back was the opportunity to be highly creative uh something I only recently accepted I, I you know <clears throat> I am creative but I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunities to to try things out because I'm fortunately, and it still happens to some degree, Then often they, you know, everyone thinks about and quite understandably the majority, because it's relatively small percentage. And so often in special ed, you have to go, okay, I get the national curriculum, or I get whatever the assessment piece is, but how do we adjust this or adapt it to meet the needs of the young people we're supporting? And that might have been a downside, but actually gave you a huge opportunity to, to really be creative and think, think differently, which is something I thoroughly enjoyed and continues to thoroughly enjoy.
0: And I imagine that ability to think differently leads us into the second um, influence in your life was when you became a principal.
1: Yeah. And the, the reason I chose this one, one, it was you know, a very, very proud moment, was uh, I often talk about there's a thin line between confidence and arrogance. And I was only, so I'd been in education for about 13, 14 years at that stage, so fairly experienced but I'd only been a, a deputy principal for about two years and I applied for principalship in the, all in the UK. This was at one of the largest special schools and by rights, I shouldn't, I don't know why. Well, I know why I applied. I just thought it'd be great experience. I, I had no intention. I had no expectation of, of getting in. I still remember to this day driving away thinking, Oh no, I'm going to have to make this work now because they, they offered it to me and I was a bit, you know, shocked, but, and it, just remind me that that needs to be confident going into those situations but people very quick to pick on arrogance and I think because I didn't probably expect to get it I could just be very true to who I was and you know quite humorous and quite engaging as opposed to I definitely need this I deserve it sort of frame of reference but it was yeah it was an interesting experience that really shaped a lot of my um, understanding of leadership and all the experiences up till then And again, I reflect back on things I did, and I'm, I'm, again, staying hopefully on the right side of the confidence as opposed to arrogance. I I believe I was lucky enough to be the right leader for that environment at that time. I don't know how great I would have been in other environments, and I really admire and respect those who do it for many, many years, as well as those who do it in very different environments because they're very unique challenges.
0: So, going back to the intro and how um, how you do identify as a futurist as a principle, were you applying those those um, aspects of being a futurist or did the futurism come a little bit later like how did that mm. have you always been a futurist in that regard in
1: in hindsight yes, I didn't have that language and I just certainly didn't have the tools or the frameworks or the understanding but by accident i'm always say I'm always someone who's always driven so Historically, I think we well naturally we're either think of the past more or we think of the future more and i 'm always thinking about what 's next and but you people say, "What did you do last week and I say, hold on a minute i 'll have to check my calendar because I tend to if you can tell me what i 'm going to do, I could share what i 'm going to do in the next week months, etc so i 've always been focused on what 's next as part of that and it, it was very much I think again I was probably the right a leader for that school at that environment because they would had someone have been there, very stable for many years, and they probably wanted someone to offer different views and different opinions. And I did share some quite different perspectives, like the introduction of a a training centre. So as opposed to just being a school, we had a training centre where we trained uh, teacher aides and education assistants on site. And we had teacher assistants being the trainers of those people. At that time, that was, you know, nearly 20 years ago now, that was fairly uh, fairly new and innovative as part of that. And we were one of the first special schools to uh, apply for specialist status at academies now in the UK. And I was the first principal special school principal to get a, a research associateship um, with the National College of School Leadership that existed then. And that sort of really is the segue into me moving to Australia because we're looking at exploring leadership in special ed settings uh, and they're about to rebuild the special school and I didn't want to just reinvent the same thing and make it a bit better I wanted to explore what was out there and for a variety of reasons ended up visiting Australia and they yeah, very much falling in love with the, the climate and everything else
0: I thought you were going to say you fell in love with a girl here and that's why you moved here uh, that <laughs> seems right. to be a, yeah that's a commentary. later
1: on later on
0: <laughs> <laughs> um your first book Mm. How did that come? How did that come about? And what prompted you to write a book?
1: Yes, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'm saying an interesting story, hopefully isn't it? it's very linked into what I just said about moving to Australia. So, look, I never ever thought I would be uh, write a book and or be involved in writing books, and I've now been involved in writing a few either as the only author or as co-authors. And, and writing is a really, really important piece to me <clears throat> in around a range of things. But how it came about originally was. Um, at a at a principals conference and had a few too many beers. Happened to be sat next to someone who who ran a was up, you know high up in a publishing company, and I was saying, "Oh, I've just been to Australia, done some research about leadership in special ed." And she said, "Oh, you should write a book around that." I said, "Yeah, of course I will." Never thinking anything would come of it, and yet that's so where I spent probably the first four months when I moved to Australia, actually deliberately writing the book. So I had a quite deliberate practice around writing it and certainly learned a lot about writing and about the need to let go of getting it right first time, getting feedback and all those other bits. And, you know, and reflection for me was it was probably the best thing I could have done at that time because I was in a new country doing something totally different. Uh, and it gains gained a bit of um, recognition and awareness of what you might be able to offer so and it's certainly an ongoing bit. I never say I love writing, but I found it very powerful in being able to deeply self-reflect around what my beliefs are and values are, and what my views are. I'm trying to share them in what I talk about being a, a curious way as opposed to this is right or that's wrong. Um, and I, it's an ongoing process for me. So I deliberately write most weeks i set aside time to write whether it's a blog whether it's towards a book or or an article or anything else but i do find it's a really good discipline i deliberately use that word because i don't find it easy uh, to do but when i sit down and write it i do find it quite uh, helpful to organize my thinking
0: so what what's your favorite topic like well, clearly I, I assume and maybe i should make assumptions but I, i'm <laughs> assuming it's education and i'm assuming that um there's, you know, there's uh, some futurism coming in there because I I have come to know how passionate you are um, about the whole education. So are they the main, like, what was the first book called? Um, What is it that you write on? What do you write on?
1: Yeah, so I like to write on a wide range of things. So I'll share a little bit around that. My first one was on leadership in special and mainstream settings because they said there wasn't a lot around all of that. I've since written and been involved in books um, around behaviour support, Around bringing together restorative practices and special needs, it's it's often where there's an intersection for me. It's more more recently where two sort of worlds nicely collide, uh, particularly the books. And I'll talk a little bit more about uh, more general writing I do, but two worlds sort of collide and get me thinking. Um, So one was about restorative practices and special needs. What do you do? How do we work? Make that available for more individuals as opposed to just those who are very verbal uh, and can take on board some of the questioning and thinking around all of that. Then I've dived into solutions-focused special education. And that was my coaching world. I dived into leadership coaching for a chunk of time and my special ed world, uh, an understanding of solutions focus, and thinking, OK, how do we adopt a more solutions-focused lens? And that was more about that historically a lot of sol- special education is very deficit-focused. You find because you get more money for it, the more you can prove what's wrong or what's what the problems someone has it sort of pulls people into deficit so playing with that thinking can we adopt more solutions focused approach in practice a lot of that happens but at a system level and that was a good you know um, personal intellectual challenge and found many sort of great writers and thinkers to help me around all of that more recently again it's around yeah there's so for, Two and a half years ago, and I've been a, always a fairly early adopter around technology, it was how might we use technology to augment learning, teaching and leading. So that's where particularly pulls me into, you know, I love technology, but I'm a big believer also it isn't the silver bullet. It's not going to solve things. And as you mentioned, current crisis is a good example of that. Teachers working super hard to try and produce online content and And this is no criticism, but I'm sure it's going to be massively variable because it it wasn't designed for that. They haven't thought about it in that way. And and to do that in such a short space of time, you know, they're doing amazingly well in what they are doing. Um, But also about thinking about helping prepare young people for what is already and certainly going to be a very different future. and What role education might play in all of that?
0: It's interesting um, that you that you mention curiosity because that is uh, I, I, Dr. Vivian Ming and I've, I've said this quote several times. Um, one of our colleagues uh, in the US says that the only skill that you're going to need to learn at school moving forward is to be a creative, adaptive problem explorer. So having that curiosity, and I know that you mentioned um, curiosity before. So cur- and my experience. Um, with you as as going through um, our faculty process has been that you have been curious you've been the question you know you ask the questions which is I find that so refreshing um, and wonderful how do you use that curiosity that questioning to positively disrupt education which I know is like it your is mission absolutely. <laughs> it is. absolutely awesome but how do you use all of that to to create that disruption
1: yeah, and a little bit of backstory very briefly. But for me, it was that for a number of years when I was involved in a lot of professional learning, I kept thinking I was getting more disillusioned with education and I hated, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who just moans about something. I either do something about it or I do something else. So I, kept thinking, I need to move out of education because I'm getting disillusioned, not by the people, but by, by the systems and the processes, really. It is part of it. Then I realized I kept coming back to it. That's my credibility. That's my background. That's the, so that has absolutely become my, my purpose is to positively disrupt education, to find people who are willing to go on that journey with me. So one of the elements around questioning, and I learned a huge amount when I was uh, dive deep into the coaching space, Um, around questions and the power of questions if you ask someone a question presuming they're listening their brain can't think of anything else other than that question so it's a very powerful tool so how do we use that in a productive constructive way Uh, and one for me is was trying to take people on a journey you know because it's very easy to potentially i'm going to use education as the example to criticize you know it hasn't changed in 100 years and Etc. Etc. Teachers need to do things differently and everything else. But the risk around some of that is it becomes so judgmental that people polarize. So they are, you know, and so we, when, once we feel attacked, when someone's criticizing us, the, the danger is we just sort of bunker down and sort of become a blocker and just defend our position as opposed to being open to new and different positions. And I find by trying to, and constantly trying to find what the right questions are, but being curious about what the right questions might be, it opens up people. We know it opens up the brain. It opens up different things about how things might be different, as opposed to saying what you're doing is wrong. Let's work up from where we are and how, how things might be. And uh, again, pulling together some threads from what I've said so far. I've got a very lovely, it's not mine, I wish it was, but a, a lovely, very simple framework called the User's Guide to the Future. There's a very powerful framework that gets people and it could be individuals, teams, groups, etc. What's your future perfect or how do you want things to be? You know, and it takes away, gets people to dream. And, uh, you know, we often told, you know, daydreaming is a bad thing. But actually, you know, that ability to dream is is never been more important in my view. And not, but it doesn't just stay there. That's the most important thing. And the next most important thing is what are you going to do? what are you going to do in the next sort of 48 hours that will head you towards that future perfect? And I love that sort of tension of dreaming, which I I enjoy doing and being divergent in my thinking, but then that deliberate practice of being convergent and saying, okay, what am I going to do as a consequence of this lovely idea? And the other two steps are one is what needs to be in place to enable that future perfect to come about? And then what are the, the signs? How will I know we're heading in the right direction. What will I see here or, or do that will give me an indication that things will change? Uh, it's, it's a very simple framework, a very powerful framework to pull people into dreaming that many people are, are uncomfortable with or those some people love or the doing, which, again, either people love doing or hate doing. So it creates a tension just to create some movement because that's a big part for me is we can all, you know, my writing and whenever I deliver things is to create enough sort of tension uh, to enable people to want to do something, as opposed to just getting lost in talk or thinking, which is nice enough. But if it doesn't lead to action for me, it's potentially not, a, not the best use of time. And it might not all happen in the one moment, but making sure in interactions there is both of those opportunities because some people, as I said, are much more comfortable dreaming and some people are much more comfortable doing but actually taking us out of our comfort zone because that, for me, and that's that's what drives me is that love of learning. I know when I'm in that sort of uncomfortable, what's been called the learning pit, that's when our greatest opportunity for growth occurs.
0: I think that the dreaming is very much aligned with, um, at SU, how we talk about moonshot moonshot thinking. And I actually don't think there's been a better time to be a moonshotter, to be a dreamer uh, because of those converging technologies. It's almost like we can create anything. If we can just put the right pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, um, we can create everything. But I I also very much align with something else you just said. Uh, So one of my favourite sayings is head in the clouds, feet on the ground. Um, And and if we have a look in history, we've mentioned this on, on podcasts earlier, but if we look back into the awesome duos, one was the dreamer and one was the doer. So, you know, I think we've mentioned before Steve Jobs and Wozniak, we've, yeah. you know, how many people actually know the name of Walt Disney's brother it was the doer of the, of the duo, you know. So I think there's many cases in that there's many, oh, we could sit here and talk just about <laughs> those could. factors for a little while. <laughs> uh, but something you also said, you mentioned learning uh, and mm-hmm. we've very much lately changed our language from lifelong education to lifelong learning how do you make the um, the how do you distinguish between education and learning in in your um, in your position as a futurist but with your intense expert educational background
1: Yeah, so look, i deliberately call myself uh, an education and learning entrepreneur and futurist and and i feel a bit sad that i have to do that because um, the main reason for that is i mean it, when it was you know first developed education was my understanding of it it was all about learning but the, the most recent you know the in the industrial age and it had good reasons why it was set up that way I fully understand that it became about you know um, the pipeline to work and I'm not saying that's not important it absolutely is we can't just ignore the economic <laughs> imperative around things and again current times are really sort of emphasizing that for us but for me I it still it like, still disappoints me and saddens me a little bit so wherever wherever I can in a and again, in a curious, gentle way, I just try, try and nudge when I see or read posts that are all about education to uh, jobs, careers. A, because we don't know what careers are going to look like or be like, you know, in the not-too-distant future, never mind, you know, when kids are entering primary school. We have no idea what jobs are going to be around. But also, uh, it needs to be, for me, much, much broader than that. You know, And as I say, <clears throat> unfortunately, education and learning do... Um, there is obviously learning that takes place in education but a lot of education as it's currently developed for me is about memorization you know it's about remembering things and being tested on your memory you know and that's a massive thing we need to significantly shift because we know already you know if that's what we're relying on for our futures then we've got a very short-term future if it's already not already gone but the 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 innate human abilities, what are often called, and it's a bit condescending, uh, the soft skills, but I like from other people's writing, calling it the essential skills. What is it that makes us different as human beings? Creativity, teamwork, cooperation, all these sorts of things. That's, for me, the competencies as opposed to content. And people are already working on this, and it's great for me to hopefully uh, find some of these people. And there's people within the... The expert faculty you mentioned, and it's great to find other people who are like-minded to help amplify the journey. If it's just single voices, that's super hard. But you don't have to explore too too far and wide to find lots of other people. And you know, it's Margaret Mead. all so and I won't do her quote justice, was it? But he might do it much better justice than I can, Christina. But it only needs a small amount number of people to create a create that revolution to change things. And I have a strong belief in that, yeah, you know, I'm not going to change the education system on my own, even with a small group, but it's a bit of a snowball effect. You start generating that change. You start generating the conversations and the dialogue. And you start to point out where, where the, the, you know, the future is already here in my view. Again, William Gibson, isn't it? The future is already here, just not evenly distributed. And helping point out where there are different ways of doing it. Because I think a lot of people in education know we've got to do it better and differently, but don't know how to. So if you can start to point to where the future is already starting to form, then people go, "Okay, there is a different way, a better way, and we can all head towards that."
0: So much in what you just said. So many things we could actually have a whole podcast over um, in what you just said. One one question I'd I'd like to ask you from my own curiosity. Mm. So not long ago, uh, in New South Wales, they introduced coding mm. as a subject. Um, and as you said earlier, we don't even know what jobs we're training, we're training people for. And I very much question the fact that, uh, that we're introducing coding because my thought is that by the time those children exit school, AI are going to be writing coding much better. But having said that, having the understanding of how coding is, is created allows us then to use it better. What are your, what are your thoughts on that whole scenario?
1: Yeah, it, and I'm, I'm very aligned to you. I think there's a risk. To, again, it's a natural thing for humans, never mind education. We want to find the answer. And there isn't a single answer. There's loads of potential answers out there. And that's the trouble, again, big, big systems. They want to say, everyone teach, you know, everyone do coding or everyone do entrepreneurship. And there's some great opportunities and great things there, but it's never quite as simple as that. Um, But so, yeah, an understanding of that type of thinking is certainly useful. There's certainly some people on need to have a deep understanding, you know, given the concerns about AI and, uh, you know, their their inbuilt biases that can happen around all of that. But for everyone to understand coding, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced myself. As you say, we know AI is going to start generating some of that. So it's, but some understanding, a bit like AI. Not everyone's going to become an expert in AI, but some understanding of what it can do, what it can't do, the the risks as well as the opportunities is useful. Um, but I think it comes for me. It comes back to, you know, as parents, we often want what's the answer that's going to solve this current problem, and it's it's far too simple to think there's going to be, uh, you know, a single thing, and it's a very complex environment and ever increasingly complex so it's more for me about not not saying don't give the opportunity for coding not saying we don't give other opportunities but creating the right mindsets and the right understanding and, and a key bit for me that I've learned recently is that is the power of unlearning so and that that's particularly linked to mindsets and beliefs as opposed to forgetting stuff because we do that naturally <laughs> sometimes we don't want to but we forget stuff but actually values and beliefs about what is education what are schools what is teaching we all carry around beliefs that and again this is sort of really pushed it in the current time to actually step back and think okay why are we why do we have to do it the way we always have done that that was for a certain time that was for a certain way of thinking actually now it's really disrupted our thinking and for me it's a perfect time to think about how do we want it to be Mm. I do but I do have a and I call myself a realistic optimist but the realist bit concerns me that that all all big systems have an inbuilt immune system and education (laughs) alongside health I think have some of the biggest immune systems going I I do have a concern we'll go back to business as normal and I really hope there's been enough disruption to know we can't go back to normal because unfortunately things like this might happen again and we can't think, just fall into that again.
0: I think um, I really appreciated what you said before. I think we've been in a uh, in a situation where with education and health and a whole lot of other aspects of our lives are we band-aided. You know, something hasn't yeah, worked, yeah. we'll fix it rather than deconstruct it. And I think that, but also something else you said resonated with me greatly though, because I do a lot of lecturing in entrepreneurship. Uh, and in some cases, it's a compulsory subject in some degrees. And I go, it shouldn't be. Everybody doesn't want to be an entrepreneur. If everybody wanted to be an entrepreneur, we would be in so much trouble <laughs> Absolutely, because we actually need that whole teamwork to get together. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the comments that got me or that, that made its mark on me greatly, um, I ran a workshop with project managers for a, a government organisation. Uh, and it was a leadership workshop and one of the we, you know everybody had to go around and do a bit of a report on what their project was and I had one woman in the group say you know what I actually don't want to lead a project I want to be the person stepping just behind each one of you to help you make those projects see the light of day and I thought that was such gold you know because we if we were all going to be project leaders nothing would ever get done Um, and something else you said lent me into your uh, your fifth point of inspiration was that point where you find your tribe and I'm getting goosebumps actually just thinking about it when you land in a company (laughs) of those people who you know um, share the same values are so aligned um, with what you want to do and what your thought process is so tell us about finding your tribe
1: yeah and it became really clear to me and it's comes very much from Seth Godin's work about your, your tribe, doesn't it? But it sort of really resonated in a number of ones. And, and, uh, and I'm going to include you, you in this, Christina, so hopefully you're not offended by it. I, you know, I realised not too long ago I'm a weirdo. You know, I'm actually unusual. I'm right on the, on the fringe, particularly in education, because largely it's a fairly, fairly conservative the small c group of people that I deliberately want to go out there and and disrupt things and push things and and you know and make people feel uncomfortable around all of that so that's what's drawn me to communities like Singularity U to Abundance Digital to Seth Godin's Alt MBA type work is there are similar like-minded people we can, and, and I also like about all of those sectors is they're not just education they're you know we de-silo so we've got a similar you know, similar mindset, some similar beliefs and values, but we come from very different spaces. And I, I think that's only to add value coming back from an education perspective. At times, it can get so siloed, and so insular that it that it misses opportunities to grow and develop and, and to influence outside. So it does, you know, it's not all one way. It's part of that. But I've been around other weirdos. You know, I I love that because it just so many ideas spark, as we know very well, too many It's trying to work out which ones to focus in on at times. But I prefer to have an excess of opportunities and ideas. And then every so often, okay, I need to filter down and decide what I'm going to action as opposed to people just blocking. Oh, we can't do that. That will never happen. That will never work. That, That has never sort of resonated with me. I've always sort of, you know, challenged those people way back, or or left environments where that was too too strong a part of the culture.
0: I think we may do a survey, uh, Nick, around the the potential um, to self identify as a weirdo on the singularity. <laughs> U uh, faculty, I'm wondering what what how many stars you'll get. Because uh, you get five from me, let me tell you. Good. Uh, and I know I know I, fa- I found it very similar when I walked into um, an SU experience. I had. Uh, In San Francisco and I remember thinking oh my god I've found a group of people who think like I do and uh, maybe I'm not so crazy after all Uh, so I I totally uh, I did have a big smile on my face while you were talking about um, finding your tribe in a bunch of weirdos Um, thank you so much for sharing those five points of inspiration it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you uh nick burnett educational uh learning and entrepreneur and futurist uh and love everything you stand for i hope you go out there and absolutely disrupt education and rewrite the book um on it thank you so much for joining us on inspire for five
1: thanks so much for the opportunity christina
0: we look forward to bringing you another episode of inspire for five meanwhile please have a look at our podcast our webinars uh and join our community thanks for joining us see you soon